Have you been to Central Park, New York City? Most of you have. Nancy and I had the privilege for about five years, a little over five years, of living very near Central Park in New York City. We fell in love with the park. And while we lived there, both of our children were born. And so when they needed to walk in the stroller, off we went into Central Park. They practically learned how to walk in Central Park. I think if you were to ask them during their toddler years about Central Park, I think they would have thought it's our front yard. I and mean, we were there so much, and we really learned to love that park. All the various ponds and the bridges that go over those little streams. We, we once lost a, a beach ball up in one of those beautiful trees. Um, we loved the great lawn. We loved the baseball diamonds up there in the northern part of the park. The sheep's meadow, the brambles. We really got to know this place. And the more and more we got to know Central Park, the more I began wondering, who designed all of this? Does anyone know who the landscape architect was for Central Park? Nobody? Who? It wasn't, it wasn't Jesus. That's the typical church answer. You still get, yeah. So God did create all plants and rocks and all of that. That's good. But there actually was a landscape architect in 1858 the city of New York gave a contract to a man named Frederick Law Olmsted. Frederick Law Olmsted was the name of the landscape architect. And he got to choose where the trees were planted, where those bridges went in. Obviously, the general landscape was there. God did make that. But he shaped everything else. And um, so it was his decision. Those big monuments that you see, he designed all of that. I began getting to know him a little bit. I read some biographies about him. And I learned a lot about him when I started learning about what's called the mall. And you can see this picture of it. The mall, which leads up to the um, Bethesda Fountain. These are beautiful American elm trees. And you can walk under their beautiful canopy as you go from the south part of the park heading into the north part where you see that iconic big fountain called Bethesda. And it's always cool under there because of the beautiful shade. I just love this part of Central Park. But on the day that the mall opened, it was in 1860, Frederick Law Olmsted got quite a bit of ridicule and mockery. Because on the day this section of the park opened, all it was was a gravel path and some tiny little elm tree saplings. They looked kind of pathetic, actually. And there was ridicule in the newspaper saying, the city of New York, all these taxpayers, they've awarded you this contract and this is what you give us? A little gravel path with some saplings. Well, Frederick Law Olmsted knew what we know, which is that those elm trees were going to grow into this beautiful canopy. I wish I could go back through time with this photograph and show the people, show the newspaper writer saying, I'm from the future and it's going to look beautiful. <laughs> We're all going to enjoy it very much. And it really bothered Olmsted when he got that mockery and ridicule for his design. Well, as you may know, we're in uh, nearing the end now of our series called Trees in the Bible. And I wanted to tell you about these elm tree saplings because there's another tree in history that when it was first introduced was also met with ridicule and mockery. But just like Olmsted's saplings, 
it grew and grew and grew in influence into something much greater that those people on that day couldn't have foreseen. I'm talking, of course, about the tree of crucifixion, the cross of Christ upon which he died. People mocked him that day. People spat upon him. If anyone knew God the Father in that moment, they might have been wondering, what are you thinking? It didn't look like much on that day, just like those saplings didn't look like much. Well, I wish I could go back in time to that day as well and show a different kind of picture to those people. I would show them, actually, I'd show them a picture of you right now. Because this picture that I'm seeing right now of God's church is like that beautiful canopy of trees that Olmstead could foresee in his vision for the park. Just think about this for a moment. That day that Jesus died on that tree of crucifixion, it, it looked pathetic, frankly, didn't it? But the influence of what happened that day has grown and grown and grown. And now there is a beautiful canopy of faith that goes over the whole earth. Just today, just today, Christians like you and me have gathered to worship the one who died on that tree. All around the world, in places like El Salvador and China and Australia and Stamford. We belong. This is the picture. I wish I could go back in time to the day that Jesus died on the cross and say, you're not going to believe it, but this thing's going to grow and grow and grow like you can't even imagine. I'd show them a picture of you. Well, I wish I could go back in time and be there, but here's the amazing truth. The Bible tells us that in two very distinct but important ways, we were there. We weren't there the day Olmsted planted those saplings. That was in 1858 or so. But we were there in two distinct but important ways the day that Jesus died on the cross. I want to show you those two ways. We'll travel through time in some sense. The first way that we were there the day that Jesus hung on that tree of crucifixion, well, we've already sung it tonight. The third song that we sang, there was that line where we said, it was my sin that held him there. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. It was my sin. It was your sin. It was our sin that held him there. I want us to think about that a little bit tonight. I want to show you what it says in the Bible about that. Colossians chapter 2 says this. And you who were dead in your trespasses, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. What is it that God set aside, nailing it to the cross? What was nailed to the cross when Jesus was nailed to the cross? Our record of debt that stood against us. It was my sin that held him there. It was my record of debt that God set aside nailing to the cross. My record of debt with its legal demands. Let's unpack that a little bit. Just imagine for a moment that somebody uh, who knows you has a stack of papers. And on each page is your financial debts. Anybody that you owe money to, whether it's school, tuition, uh, loans, 
or a car loan or medical bills or a personal loan to a friend. They've got the whole stack of paper there and they sit down with you and across the table and he's got this red stamp and it says paid. And he just starts stamping that and moves it aside, stamping that and moves it aside, stamping that. What if all your financial debts were just moved out of the way? Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Now we get the hallelujahs coming. Yes, how would that feel? That would feel amazing, wouldn't it? Well, maybe you don't have any financial debts, but that's not really what this is talking about. It says our record, he's canceled our record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. What that means is, you see, God created us to love him with our whole heart and to love our neighbors as ourselves. Has anyone done that perfectly? No. So we all have, other translations call this a record of wrongs, a record of wrongs, all the ways that we have done wrongs, the ways that we have not loved God with our whole heart, ways that we have not loved one another as much as we've loved ourselves. We all have a record of wrongs. If you don't think you have a record of wrongs, let's just go through this little exercise. <laughs> let's say I have a secret recording a video of all of your secret thoughts that you don't think anyone else has known about. Or the, the video goes on and it shows all of your secret deeds that no one else has seen. <laughs> Let's say I have that on a little DVD and I ask John to put it in the DVD player and we could just watch it here tonight. Anybody want your secret thoughts and deeds shown to the rest of the church? No. That feeling you're having right now, that reveals that you, that I, that we all have a record of wrongs, a record of debt. And the reason that it stands against us is because God created us to love him perfectly and to love one another. And so when we don't do that, we're in debt to our creator. So God could take that and hold it against us. He could say, look, here's your record of wrongs. Here's your record of debt. Of debt. Now pay up. That's not what he did, you see. He says he took our record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So when I ask, were you there the day that Jesus died on the cross, you can say, yes, my record of debt, my record of wrongs was set aside. It's no longer being held against me. It has been nailed to the cross with Jesus. And that could be, amen, that could actually be enough. We could just pack up right now. But there's actually more because there's another way, there's an actual deeper way that we were there with him the day that he died. We were there because it was our record of debt that was nailed to the cross. But the second way is that we are united with him in his death and resurrection through baptism. We are united with him spiritually. We're united with him mystically. Theologians call this the mystical union. Let's read about it in Romans chapter 6. Here's what it says. We're united with him in his death and resurrection through baptism. Romans chapter 6 says this. Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. In baptism, we 
died with Jesus. We were buried with him and also raised to new life with him. Even the act of baptism gives us a symbol, gives us a reminder of this. When we're baptized, we're taken from going above the water, we're plunged down beneath the surface of the water, and then we're raised up again over that threshold. In the same way that Jesus was nailed to the cross, died, buried into the earth with the stone sealing up the tomb, and then bursting forth out of the threshold of that tomb. That's what one of the things that baptism reminds us of, going down beneath something and then coming back out. And what the Bible is teaching us here and in other places is that if we're baptized, if we're baptized into Christ, there's a part of us, you see it says, we were buried with him. There's a part of us, it's called our old man. It's called our sinful self, the part that carries that record of wrongs. That part of us in baptism doesn't come up above the water at the second half of the baptism. It stays down there, spiritually speaking. And when we come up through that threshold of that water, we're given this new inner man. There's an old man and there's a new man or or woman. And we get this new life that's been afforded to us, that's been given to us by the power of the resurrection. That's one of the reasons he died in our place, so that through baptism we can be mystically united with him, so that our old self no longer has reign over our bodies, no longer has reign over our lives. That'd be another great place to say hallelujah, (laughs) because... If you think about that, that old man, that man, that woman that carries the record of debt, that carries the record of wrongs, if that inner man has died with Jesus, then we're no longer reigned over, we're no longer dictated by that person. But this new life that God has given us through baptism because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, we get to walk, I love this, in the newness of life. Who wants to walk in the newness of life? Me too. You know, there was a man that we encountered in our story, and John, you can show this now in Matthew 27. There's a man named Simon who was literally physically there that day that Jesus died. I've just shown you from Scripture the two ways that we were there, one with our record of wrongs that was nailed to the cross, and the other with our mystical union through baptism. But Simon had the amazing privilege of actually being there. Think about this. Simon of Cyrene was asked to carry the cross of Jesus. He got to hold that wood. He got to hold that branch, that tree, upon which all of our records of debt would soon be nailed. Imagine how this would have changed Simon's life, witnessing the crucifixion. Well, I have a pretty strong feeling that he stuck around for a couple of days and also witnessed the resurrection, or at least the post-resurrection Jesus. I say I have that that suspicion, that feeling, because he's not mentioned again in Scripture. But you notice it says where he's from, a man of Cyrene. Cyrene is in northern Africa, pretty far away from Jerusalem. But We think there were about 100,000 Jewish people living in Cyrene at the time of Jesus. So some of them would have been traveling to Jerusalem probably for the Passover. Well, Simon of Cyrene obviously was there. He encounters Jesus on the day of his crucifixion. And then we don't hear about him again, but in Acts chapter 11, verse 20, some of the apostles are in a place called Antioch, far away from Cyrene. 
And two groups of people show up in Antioch, men of Cyprus and men of Cyrene. What are the men of Cyrene doing in Acts chapter 11? They're preaching Christ. How did those men hear about Jesus all the way down in Cyrene? Simon must have run home and said to his friends and his neighbors and his family, you guys aren't going to believe this. This man, he, he died on, on this cross. It was horrible. It was terrible. But you got to get this part. Three days later, he rose again. We know from non-biblical historical record that by about 150 AD, Cyrene was a major Christian hub of the early church. All because this one man who was there it changed his life. It changed his testimony. It ended up changing his hometown, and it helped change the whole world. So Simon was there, and it changed his life, but I've just shown you that we also were there. We were there because our record of wrongs was nailed to the tree, and we were there through this mystical union with Jesus. Just consider that for the next couple of minutes as you hear this song. Were you 